This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You kind of take a look at it and think, well, this, this must not be it because I'm not sure I can fit through that <laughs> first section. <laughs> That's what I like about slot canyons. I have to... I have to know the night before how much pizza to eat before I go into those things. <laughs> this is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, our stories of adventures and misadventures as we traveled to all of the U.S. national parks and public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We are the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're talking about 10 of our favorite places in southern Utah beyond the Mighty Five. The Mighty Five are the national parks that most people focus on when planning a trip to Utah. And as amazing as these parks are, there's so much more to see and do in southern Utah. We have a long list to share with you of our favorite places and public lands. Many of them have views and hikes that are every bit as spectacular as the national parks, but they're more off the beaten path. If you're planning a trip to Utah, it's really worth adding some of these places to your itinerary. To kick things off, we discuss why we wanted to record this episode and shed some light on the lesser known locations. And at the end of the episode, we'll answer a question from a listener in our mailbag segment. I like the subject of this episode. You do? Yeah. Utah, Southern Utah, because we love Southern Utah so much. And everyone's so focused on the national parks. They are. And, and, and which are fantastic. And we were too, I think, when we first went to Southern Utah. But there is so much more there other than the national parks. So many great places, public lands, places, parks. And that's what we're going to talk about in this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, we we first, we should at least say a little bit about those five national parks. Well, we should. And if you were wondering about the title of this episode, which is Beyond Utah's Mighty Five, 10 Amazing Public Lands, um, Utah's Mighty Five is just another uh, sort of a phrase that they call the five national parks in Utah, which are Zion. Bryce Canyon, Arches, Capitol Reef, and Canyonlands. Those are the mighty five. The national parks in southern Utah are known for their amazing landscapes. When you think about it, like arches, you're never going to find as many natural arches in one place as Arches National Park. And the vistas of Canyonlands, both the Overlooks of the confluence of the green and Colorado rivers in, in the north and the, the views of the needles in the south. And, of course, the hoodoos of, of Bryce and the scenic drive of Capitol Reef and the, and the beautiful valley of Zion. It's about these incredible landscapes. Mm-hmm. It is. There's no place like it. I think Utah is probably the state we have visited the most 
and the place where we've had the most adventures and misadventures, wouldn't you say? Right. Yeah. And some of those adventures have been on foot. Some of them have been driving some of the back roads. Mm -hmm. Uh, The roads can be a little bit bumpy in some places to get to. Uh, some of the destinations. Uh, recently, we had a situation where we were on this incredibly muddy, steep road, and uh, fortunately, the the truck did a such a fantastic job that we're getting a little bit more confident about doing some of the road based adventures. I, we still haven't done the Burr Trail, so the Burr Trail's in the mm-hmm. central part of southern Utah. Got to do that. And, and, and that kind of scary Schaefer Trail that comes out of Canyonland. So that's right. on my list, too. I have a huge list. You know that, right? Right. So we're going to have to do those. I guess that that's another part of the story is even though we have been there so many times, the list is pretty long of the things we still have yet to do. It's huge. Every time we go and we check something off the list, we talk to someone there, whether it be a ranger or someone who lives there or another uh, visitor, and we find out more things that we didn't know existed and we add them to the list. So I I swear the list never gets any shorter. Right. But today we're going to talk about in this episode, we're going to talk about 10 of the places that are outside the national parks in southern Utah. They're just Great spots to visit and great adventures to have. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's a lot more than 10. We always struggle to narrow it down. We, you know, we started with 20. And because we try to keep this podcast to an hour, uh, you know, there's just no way we can talk about all that. So we'll, you know, of course, in future episodes, we can talk about some of the things we left out because we know that we there's some other great stuff to see. And as we have uh, new adventures, we'll talk about those on future podcasts. Absolutely. Now we we had thought a month or so ago as we were recording new episodes that we would not be talking about COVID-19 because we want to keep these episodes evergreen. And if someone listens to them 3 years from now, you know, we didn't want to date it by by talking about that. But it does come into play because these 10 places we're going to tell you about as of right now, May 2020, some of them might be closed. You know, when we tell you that the campgrounds are open all year, some of the campgrounds are closed. So today's episode is for future planning down the road. Right. And that's a, and that's a theme with pretty much everything we talk about in terms of, of places to go. Things change. Mm-hmm. Roads, roads change. Conditions of parks change. And so rather than try to put in these podcasts exact hours when the visitor center's open or what trail is open at a given time or what's the right directions. Just uh, do that research before you go. It's it These days, it's just so easy to find that information. Just Google it or go to the, the website of that particular park and, and you'll get the most updated information. That's right. And hopefully we'll get back to Utah before too long. We had to cancel our March trip and I'm really missing it, missing our adventures. It's time to go out and and get lost or I don't know, just, you know, just go back out to Utah and um, have some adventures again. Yep. Looking forward to it. So here are 10 other places in public lands in southern Utah. Besides the five national park national parks that are great things to add to an itinerary if you're traveling in the area. So we're going to talk about 10 of them. Mm -hmm. 
And Karen, what is the first one? The first one is Monument Valley Navajo Tribal Park, which is um, it is in Utah, but it also it sits on the Utah Arizona border, so a big chunk of it is also in Arizona. But it's such a great place that I, I wanted to make sure we talked about it today. Right, southeast of or southeast part of the state of Utah, and my favorite thing about this park is. It reminds me of the Roadrunner cartoons. <laughs> I cannot look at the Monument Valley without thinking of the Roadrunner going off a cliff and uh-huh. fa- were- falling slowly and then a cloud of dust puffing up. <laughs> That's your reference. It reminds me of the Wild Wild West. So there were a lot of cowboy movies filmed there with um, John Wayne riding off on his horse. And, and it's just an iconic landscape. You know, it has sandstone buttes and um, it just looks very Western to me. Now, it's on Navajo land. So mm-hmm. it's a Navajo tribal park. And I believe they prohibit all forms of climbing now. Yeah. The other thing we should note is that um, visitors are not allowed to go anywhere in the tribal park without a guide, except for one particular hike that we'll talk about in a minute. So you can't just park your car, get out and start wandering. So the other uh, thing that you might recognize the landscape of uh, Monument Valley from is the movie Forrest Gump. And the scene where he's running down the highway and he finally decides to stop running, that's one of the highways leading into Monument Valley. It's actually Highway 163. Right. In the movie, he is running north. Mm-hmm. So if you're driving north to south to the park, there's a place where you'll you'll see this spot. I don't know if it's marked on the highway it anymore. Is is, is it? it says Forrest Gump Hill or something, and yeah. there's a little pull-off. And I will say, be careful when you're driving down I uh, 163 because people will stand in the middle of the highway with traffic coming and take photos and not watch what what's going on around them. They've uh, improved that highway some, and uh, the visibility is pretty good, but mm-hmm. just watch because people people reach <laughs> that point, they get all excited, and I've seen people just walk right out in front of cars. Oh, sure, and people, um, they do handstands on the road um, with this gorgeous scenery in the back. They you know, they do jumps in the air, they skateboard, so it's kind of a thing now, but we, we have a picture of it from the road as well, so we'll make sure and post that on our website. And we've only done a few of those things ourselves. <laughs> we <laughs> with, did not with, skateboard. <laughs> no, we don't have, I don't have a skateboard. So you can drive on 163, and you're sort of skirting the perimeter of the actual tribal park, and, and that does not cost anything. If you want to make the turn into the tribal park, the last time we were there, it cost $20 per car, and that was for up to four people in your car. And that takes you into the park itself, where most of those um, sort of iconic buttes are located. Now, most a lot of people, and, and we do this all the time, is it, there's a tendency to want to skip the visitor center because you want to get into the park and see it. This particular park, one tip we have for you is the visitor center itself. There's a patio right uh, off the the entrance to the, the gift shop and, and area, it, which is possibly the best place in the park to get photos of some of these 
thousand foot butte monuments. I thought you were going to say one of the main reasons to go in is because there's an incredible gift shop that has oh, yeah. beautiful Navajo jewelry of all kinds, rings, necklaces, bracelets, earrings, pendants. I mean, gorgeous. I could spend hours in there looking at all the beautiful native jewelry. So that's another thing to check out if you're there. But uh, once you're inside the park, there are really two main things to do. Um, and one, if you want to hike, there is a four-mile trail called the Wildcat Trail, which, which will take you around West Mitten Butte. It's one of those buttes that looks like a mitten. Because it has a little thumb mm-hmm. sticking out. Yes. And um, it's the only trail you can hike without a Navajo guide. Um, and we did that, and it was it's a great hike. Yeah, if you like open desert mm-hmm. hikes. And it also gives you a, a great opportunity to see the butte, obviously, from 360 degrees as mm-hmm. you're walking around it. So that's that's a lot of fun. Yeah. And then the other thing to do is once you're inside, again, inside the park, there is a 17-mile dirt road that's a, a scenic drive, and it will take you past a lot of these, you know, really cool rock formations, but it's a rough road. <laughs> it's it's pretty rough. We we've we've, yeah. we've driven it before, but we've I I got to say we've gone to the park other times and started down the road and just uh Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was worried about our beer all exploding in the back, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it shakes you pretty good. It does, and it gets very dusty. Now, if you don't want to drive it yourself, there is an option. They they have tours, and they have these open air vehicles that you can. I, I'm assuming it costs something. I'm not sure about that, but you can uh, go on a tour with a Navajo guide on one of their vehicles if you don't want to drive. Great park, absolutely stunning uh, to see. Yeah, I think it's worth uh, certainly worth the the trip south to to see that. Absolutely. Now, a little bit further north of that is an area that has kind of three interesting places that we'll talk about, which is Gooseneck State Park. Mm-hmm. Now, a gooseneck is an area of a river where the river is uh, going so slow or the elevation change is so low that the river kind of uh, wraps itself back around. So it does these squiggles and the little squiggles when it does that, if you look at them from above, it looks like a, a goose's neck. And of course, when these things are a thousand feet tall and you are at an overlook to oversee them, they're just spectacular. So there's Gooseneck State Park. Mm-hmm. And it's called Goosenecks because there are two of them next right. to each other. It's it's a double. Um, I think the um, technical term is entrenched meander. And there are two of them at Gooseneck State Park that were formed by the San Juan River that flows through, through that area. But um, Goosenecks is a quick stop. Um, it costs five dollars to get in. You you drive basically right to the overlook, get out of your car, and you look down. Gosh, like a thousand feet. You look down at this river and and these goosenecks, and it's it's really spectacular. The distance of, of these two goosenecks is is one and a half miles, but because the river is is so curvy there, it actually flows for six miles to make its way through. So it's definitely worth a stop to see. And they do have a campground if you're interested in camping there. I think it's um it's like ten bucks ten bucks a night. Uh, but anyway, it's not it, as I said, it's a quick stop. It, it's not too far out of the way if you're going to Monument Valley. Definitely worth worth it to see. Now close by Goosenecks State Park, just uh, a little bit north of there 
is an area called Valley of the Gods. And it is, I would say it's similar to Monument Valley. Uh, of course, it's not, it's not in a Navajo tribal park. This is uh, U.S. public land. Right, right. And uh, again, it has, there's there's no entrance fee. There's There's no ranger there checking cars as they go in. There's a what, a 17-mile dirt road mm-hmm. that meanders through these monuments. And again, the uh, main attraction there are these buttes that rise from the desert floor in spectacular fashion. Uh, and so that's 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 the main feature. Right. And it, it is very remote once you get out there in, in the 17 miles. And there are no services, so you want to make sure you've got plenty of gas. And um, it is managed by the BLM, but there isn't any kind of um, visitor center or anything out there. But it, it's a really pretty drive. And we do see – we've been out there a couple times. We do see RVs out there. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, know I what the process is if, if, if you get a permit to go out there. But, uh, yeah, so, some people love the desolation. They go out with their mm-hmm. RV and stay out there for a week and – just kind of by themselves. Mm-hmm. Spectacular spot. Now, when we visited there, we drove through the Valley of the Gods and then went to Gooseneck State Park. But there's also a cool attraction <laughs> right right next to these two places, which is called the Moki Dugway. <laughs> and we didn't know what, what Moki was or Dugway was, but it turns <laughs> out that Dugway is the name for a road that carves – through a cliff and, and and makes its way up up a cliff. And so this dugway is a three mile section of State Route 261. Now what's so incredible about this is it climbs what a thousand feet mm-hmm. up from the floor of the desert up to Cedar Mesa. Yes. And winds winding switchbacks. We were kind of scared to drive it for the first few trips to southeastern Utah and we skipped it but then we finally did it well the reason we did it was because when we went to Goosenecks State Park the woman who took our five dollars at the at the little ticket booth we asked her about it we said you know we we want to do it but we just don't know is it you know what's it like and she said oh she does it every day she said you won't have any trouble so that gave us the confidence to try it and she was right it's it looks more intimidating than it actually is well but I will say this we were there on a sunny dry day and with a lot of the roads in in utah southern utah if it's wet it's a whole different deal so mm-hmm. i so just just know that if it's a dry clear day uh without any ice or snow it's really not a big deal right and the views from the top are stunning right. and um now there are warning signs at the bottom of the road and one of the things that they recommend is that um, vehicles should be less than 28 feet long and less than 10,000 pounds in weight. And I think, you know, as far as RVs and trailers go, you just, you know, it's up to you. If we, you saw, we saw a small RV mm-hmm. make make its way up with without any problem, but yeah. uh, certainly up to you. So that's the second public land area of our list. Uh, Gooseneck State Park, Valley of the Gods, and Moki Dugway, all, all close together. Right. As you're taking that road up, it's that State Route 261 up the Moki Dugway, that puts you up in Bears Ears National Monument, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And specifically, we went that way to go see the next park that's on our list, which is up there, which is Natural Bridges National Monument. Was it the first 
National Park site in the state of Utah? Yes, it was the very first one of all the the NPS sites. It was the very first one. Uh, it was designated by Teddy Roosevelt in 1908. So it's it's been there a long time. Right. And I think when it was designated, the roads to it were very primitive. Oh, it, it was, yeah. It was hard for people to get there. Now, of course, today there's a, a you know, a nice uh, paved highway that, that goes close by. And then there's a turnoff that uh, good road that goes into it and a scenic drive. So it's easy to get to. Mm -hmm. But it sits at about, it's at high elevation. It's about 6,500 feet up on that cedar, a mesa plateau. So the the cool thing about natural bridges are the three natural bridges. And I'm going to butcher these names, but I'm going to try to pronounce them. Uh, They're called Asipapu, Kachina, and Oachomo. (laughs) Right. There is a paved nine-mile loop that will take you to overlooks for all three of these natural bridges. So if you don't have a lot of time, you can just drive the loop. It's beautiful. You can stop, get out of your car, and look down and see all three of these bridges. But if you have more time, the best way to see these bridges is from down below. And there are there's a series of trails that kind of all loop together. You could do them all. It's, it would be kind of a long way. We've We've done... Uh, two of the the loops, but they take you down into the canyon. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful. So so as Matt said, there's a few options. You can do a full loop, which is almost 10 miles, and that will take you down and past all three bridges back up. You cut across the mesa back to where your car is parked. Uh, the one we did was, was a little bit shorter. We did the Sipapu to Kachina Bridge. Um, and that loop was about 5.7 miles. That's when we did. And it was fantastic. Right. It's a little steep going down and mm-hmm. then a little, little steep coming up. Mm-hmm. But once you're once you're down in the – is this White River? Uh, White Canyon. White Canyon, mm-hmm. which also just runs for miles and miles through mm-hmm. uh, Utah. But this particular area, once you're down in the canyon, you're hiking along the – creek slash river. Mm-hmm. So not a lot of elevation gain once you're down there. No. And it was beautiful because there was forests down there. There were a lot of trees. Uh, and, you know, I think um, indigenous people used to live down there as well. But uh, yeah, so the hike down, there were a few ladders that you had to descend. Um, nothing, I don't know, probably nothing more than what, eight feet maybe tall. Yeah, they, they weren't tough. It, right. And then there were um, some kind of steep steps that were carved into the rock. So, you know, um, you have to kind of navigate that to get down there, but it is the best way. And then you're actually standing under these three incredible bridges looking up at them, which is a wonderful way to see them. So if you have the time, take at least a half a day and and do one of those hikes down into the canyon to see the, the bridges. And they have a pretty good campsite by the visitor center. Mm-hmm. I think they have like 13 campsites in the campground. Yeah. It yeah. it looked like a, a nice, well-kept campsite. Mm-hmm. Also, one more thing. Not only was it the first NPS site, but Natural Bridges was the first international dark sky park. So apparently, we were not there at night, unfortunately, but apparently the stars there are incredible. Well, it's so far from anywhere mm-hmm. that I'm sure the, the sky is very dark and the stars are beautiful mm-hmm. when they're out, when there's no moon. That was the third one. What's yeah. our what's number four? 
Number four is Bears Ears National Monument. And that, again, is in the same area. We drove through Bears Ears to get to Natural Bridges. And coming from that direction, which would have been south to north, you can actually see why the park is called Bears Ears, because there are these two towering buttes that right. rise up out of the landscape that look just like bear's ears from far away. Yeah, we'll put a picture of that on our website. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, it, it's, it, there's only kind of one little stretch of highway where you can see it just just right, mm-hmm. and, and we, we have a photo of that. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's pretty cool. And now Bears Ears is co-managed by uh, the BLM, which if we didn't mention this before, is the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, the Forest Service, and five local American tribes. Uh, now, it used to be, Bears Ears used to be huge, the area, but in 2017, the boundary lines were redrawn, and Bears Ears, the land in Bears Ears was cut by 85%. So now, they separated into two units. One unit is Indian Creek, and the other is Shosh Jaw. And that area, that 85% that was cut, it's not like it turned into private land and there's homeowners or things like that on it. It's still public land. It just doesn't have the same kind of designation or or protection Uh of of a national monument. But there's still interesting things you can do in that entire original area of the national monument. And that access really hasn't changed. Right. As a matter of fact, the Valley of the Gods that we talked about, that used to be in Bears Ears. um, And that was one of the pieces of land that is no longer in that particular national monument. But um, Bears Ears, that whole area is just very remote. And Unless you're going to drive on the the two highways that, you know, kind of run through this area, you're you're going to need a high clearance vehicle to go into some of those back areas. Right. Or hiking by foot. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, there are some interesting – this whole area has thousands of ancient archaeological sites Mm -hmm. uh, hidden all throughout, and some of them are – some of them are close enough that you could hike to – some of them aren't, and you would need a side-by-side or some other kind mm-hmm. of high-clearance uh, vehicle to, to get back in there. Mm-hmm. Or you could hire a guide. There are guide services right. that will take you back in there. But one that we were able to hike to and is absolutely stunning is called House on Fire, one of these archaeological sites. Um, it's located in the South Fork of Mule Canyon. And the hike is only about um, about a mile and a half to get to this particular from, from the trailhead, once you start hiking mm-hmm. on uh, on the trail, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So the cool thing about House on Fire, and of course the reason it has that name, is because when the sun is shining down on it and the lighting is just right, it looks like flames are shooting out of this cliff dwelling. Right. If you get the photograph just right, and mm-hmm. the, the lighting's just right, and it's not always just right. I think we we have a photo. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we'll put that on the website. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it was amazing to see. And then uh, the same canyon, if you continue hiking for another two, two and a half miles, you'll come across another seven to eight additional ruins that are sort of tucked up in the cliffs. Yeah. When we went to House on Fire, we were driving that State Route 95. Uh, we were driving it west out of uh, across Utah. That highway there's a stretch of it. It's called the Bicentennial Highway, and it runs through Bears Ears. And the whole the whole stretch of, of highway, it's a scenic 
Byway. Mm-hmm. And it's just beautiful. The, the uh, scenery, the landscape changes as you go east to west or which, whichever direction you're <laughs> you're driving. Uh, but yeah, that that's another thing to keep in mind if if you're in the area. That's that's an incredible highway. Yeah, the scenic byway runs for 121 miles, and uh, so Hanksville is sort of on its border to the west, and then U.S. Route 191 is borders it on the east. But there have been times where we didn't have time to stop and get out and hike anywhere, but we just drove through on that highway because it is so beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh my gosh. And on both sides, the scenery is stunning. So highly recommend that if you've got some time. And especially if you're headed over to like Hanksville, Capitol Reef, um, you just cut through on that highway and it's beautiful. So one other national monument we want to talk about that's down in the same area. You can do all of these things that we've mentioned so far on the same trip because they're close enough to get there is Hovenweep National Monument. And Hovenweep has very well-preserved remains of stone dwellings um, of ancestral Puebloan villages. It's in southern Utah, right on the uh, eastern border. With Colorado. Right, right. And this area was once home to 2,500 people. And these um, archaeological sites that are preserved here were built um, between seven and 800 years ago. We have been there uh, a couple of times in the off season mm-hmm. uh, when there's just nobody there. Now, of course, if you go in the off season and the visitor center is closed, you, you miss out on that. Right. Well, the first time we went... There was a monsoon. (laughs) So we went into the visitor center and it was raining like hell. We couldn't even, you know, you couldn't even walk 10 steps without getting drenched. So we ran into the visitor center and we hung out there for a while, hoping that the storm would let up because we really wanted to go see it. And, you know, we were in there chatting with the ranger for about an hour till he he got really tired of us and and the rain never let up. So, So we left. But we went back the next year in November. And as Matt said, even though the visitor center was closed, we were able to do the hike that we have done there is right right off of the visitor center. And it has the largest collection of structures. It's called the Square Tower Group Hike. Um, it's a loop trail that runs about two miles around the rim of this canyon. You can do it counterclockwise and go around the canyon, see all the archaeological sites, and then come back clockwise. That's probably makes it about three miles in total if you do Mm -hmm. it that way. But you also then don't have to descend into the canyon. There's really zero elevation change. Right. Or you can do it as a loop. And when you do it clockwise or counterclockwise, you go about 80 to 100 feet down into the canyon through some trees, and that's interesting down there, and Mm -hmm. then then back up the other side. Right. So you get a sense of what the people who would have lived in this area would experience if they're in the canyon also. Mm -hmm. I particularly loved there, there was a a square tower, which is how this got its name, and that was really cool. And then the other one was Hovenweep Castle, and those were some pretty great remains that were left too. I think those were my two favorite uh, places to see on that, on that hike. And in good shape. Yes, They're, very well I mean, preserved. I mean, there's, there's crumbling that's that's going on, but uh, mm-hmm. it, 
pretty well preserved. These really aren't cliff dwellings. No. These are stacked stones mm -hmm. uh, stacked onto flat ground, but on the edge of the, the, you know, the cliffs of the canyon. But they, they're not built into the side of a cliff like a Mesa Verde. Right. They're very different. Now, there are some other sites you can visit that are part of Hovenweet, but they require a, you know, a short drive down some pretty primitive roads. Um, we decided to go to one last summer, which is called Cutthroat Castle. And gosh, it seemed like it was in the middle of nowhere, didn't it? Well, that's because it is in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and it was also we, like 110 degrees, I think, that day. We almost died just walking the yeah, we 100 a, yards to the site. We did. We had a hard time finding it. But then when we did find it, it was pretty cool to see. Again, no one was out there. We never saw another car. Uh, the only thing is we did hear that... Cutthroat Castle is currently closed to visitors. I think that's temporary while they work out some some access issues. Yeah, it's it's like we said, it literally is in the middle of nowhere, and it's kind of a re remote access, and they're still working out the details of mm -hmm. the people who own the land around it so that uh, people can get there safely. Mm -hmm. Two quick notes I have also. Uh, there is a campground that's open year-round that has 31 campsites, uh, first come, first served only. And also, Hovenweep is designated an international dark sky park, so another really great place to stargaze. If we go from Hovenweep, uh, go back to Highway 191 and then go north up towards Moab and pass just a little bit, we come to another place that is great to visit if you're on a national parks tour in southern Utah, which is Dead Horse Point State Park. Mm -hmm. Gosh, Utah has some of the greatest state parks. Uh, so, yeah, if you're visiting Arches National Park and Canyonlands, you definitely, definitely want to take a trip to Dead Horse Point. Right. It's about 32 miles west of Moab. Mm -hmm. It's really the same road that you're going to take to the Island in the Sky District of Canyonlands National Park. So if you're going there, you're going to drive right past the, the turnoff to mm -hmm. Dead Horse Point State <laughs> Park. <laughs> I always want to call it Dead Horse Point. State Park. <laughs> so the defining feature of the park, the reason that people go there, is to see this spectacular panoramic view from Dead Horse Point. And it's of the Colorado River sort of winding its way around this. Well, I guess it's kind of a gooseneck, isn't it's it? A, it's a meander. It's I, a meander. Yeah, I don't think yeah. you get a full gooseneck mm -hmm. view, but... It's it's beautiful sight. It is. It's about two thousand feet below where the where this um, overlook is, and it's it's gorgeous. You can see for miles, and so some people drive in just just to just to see this view and take some photos. But you can also hike. There are like seven miles of trails. Yeah, it's not a huge park. The, no. the trail that we took along the rim there it's it's wasn't that long. I don't, I don't know, maybe two or three miles. We went mm -hmm. two or three miles out, but saw great views along along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, this is also an international dark sky park. Actually, I would just wonder if all these parks in Utah are. Maybe we should have issued a blanket statement at the beginning. Um, but they also have, they have two campgrounds there. And what's cool, and we haven't checked these out yet, is that they have nine new yurts in the campground that you can rent overnight. And if you don't know what a yurt is, how would you describe it man like a round well, it's a round it's a round structure that's canvas covered so there's there's a, a physical superstructure like 
wooden beams that has canvas stretched over them. We haven't seen the ones at uh, Dead Horse Point State Park. I'm guessing they're very similar to the ones that at another park we'll talk about in a minute, Goblin Valley. Mm -hmm. The ones we saw in Goblin Valley, they had doors and window insulated windows yeah, I, I think and, they're i think they're pretty nice and these right. are the ones at dead horse point state park are are fairly new i think it's pretty deserted out there so mm. you know be prepared to entertain yourself right i would love to check those out and if you want more information about uh, their schedule and prices uh, those are available to reserve on reserveamerica.com yeah so check out that if you're in the Moab area or Canyonlands, the Island and Sky area, Dead Horse Point State Park is something you should check out. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to talk about one of my favorites. Not, I shouldn't say that because they're all my favorites, but this one is especially my favorite. <laughs> Goblin Valley State Park. 12 miles north of Hanksville. Mm-hmm. And, of course, everyone knows where Hanksville is. Right. right? Middle of nowhere, <laughs> again, Hanksville. Again, you'll have to Google it because <laughs> we'll, we'll get the uh, directions wrong. But kind of in the middle of nowhere, but super cool landscape. Mm-hmm. This, this is an area where uh, the rock is just so and the, the erosion was just right that it created these, uh, for, for lack of better description, goblin-shaped like small hoodoos. Yeah, well, they're sort of mushroom shaped. Yeah, mushroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They kind of look like goblins, but it's a beautiful area to hike through and just surreal. Like I mean, about as close as you're going to get to some kind of other planet, you know, moonwalk kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Right. A couple things that I love. One is you can wander wherever you want. You do not have to be on a trail. So you're just, there's this huge area of these goblins and you just wander amongst them. And I know this is weird, but I always think of them. So some of them are really small, like a couple of feet tall. And even the big ones aren't probably more than what, maybe eight feet tall. They, they look like families to me. They look like mm. oh, there's the mom, dad, and there's the little kids. And I don't know, it's like this, these families of goblins. And I think it's a, definitely a magical place. It's not a huge park. It's no. about 3,600 acres. Uh, big enough you can get lost, but small enough that if you did get lost, you just keep walking in circles and eventually, because there's a little bit of an elevation change, you can see the parking lot. Right. You'll eventually mm-hmm. walk past a goblin and see the parking lot off into the distance. So I, I don't think people are going to get lost in the outer reaches of this park. No. And again, it, it's a, it could be a quick visit if you wanted it to be, because as Matt just said, you drive to the parking area and you you head down a little bit of elevation into this big area and, and they're right there. So you don't have to hike a long way to get to the goblins. And it's a pretty popular place. I think the last statistic I saw was about 60,000 visitors a year. That's, that's kind of a lot for a, a little state park in the middle of nowhere. And they have uh, a well-kept campground mm-hmm. there with the sites look, you know, we've we've been there in the off season. The sites look clean and orderly, and it'd be a great place to to camp. They also have a couple of yurts. I think two. Mm-hmm. And when we were there one time, again in the off season, the uh, Department of Natural Resource staff was out there 
fixing a deck and I think replacing a window and they let us in to see the inside of, of the yurt they were working on it. And they're nice. They are nice. It was fun to see the inside and we took some pictures. Again, we'll post those because we had no idea what, what it would look like on the inside. But I mean, there are beds and table and I mean, it, it looked very comfortable. So it's definitely a place we'd like to stay when we go back. Now we should mention that Goblin Valley State Park is at the south, kind of southeast side of this bigger land area called the San Rafael Swell. Mm-hmm. It's kind of uh, – I'm not even sure you would notice it from just driving by. It's essentially like this plateau, this swell of land. And, of course, over millions of years, the – Water and wind has eroded the edges of the swell, and wherever that happens, it creates these you know pretty cool slot canyons and places where you can hike. And so, on the southeastern kind of stretch of the San Rafael Swell, there's a series of hikes, and one of our favorite uh, hikes that we've done in the area was uh, Little Wild Horse Canyon. Right, right. Now we did it as a loop, and this is. Gosh, maybe five minute drive to the trailhead from uh, Goblin Valley State Park, and you can go up this slot canyon. We, when we got to the back side of it, then connected to another uh, trail called what was the Bell mm-hmm, Bell Canyon Bell Canyon, and came back and. Beautiful, beautiful slot canyon. Mm-hmm. And that to do that whole loop with both canyon was about a, a nine-mile round-trip hike. Now, of course, you could just wander into Little Wild Horse Canyon and, um, and you know, go for a mile or two because it gets spectacular right at the beginning. Now, uh, these are very popular places, especially amongst families because it's easy for little kids to go in there. But there are other slightly more technical slots over there. I know there's one called Ding and Dang that people have told us about. But it's funny because when we were at Goblin Valley in the visitor center, we were talking to a ranger and we were asking him for Slot Canyon suggestions over there. And he mentioned a few others. And then he looked at us and he said something along the lines of, but when you go in these other ones, you need to know your hiking partner very well. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, hmm, that's kind of an odd thing to say. (laughs) And I think what he sort of explained was like, you're going to have to push their butt up and all that kind of thing. A lot of boosting. A lot of boosting going on. I think that's what he meant. Didn't didn't you take it to me? That kind of creeped me out a little bit. So I didn't think about it anymore. But uh, Well, I wasn't too worried since I know you very well. I'm not sure I'd want to go with, you know, somebody else. But Well, like we said at the beginning, this is an example of when we go out and do things in southern Utah, we come back with a longer list of things to do mm-hmm. than, than we started. And th- that whole series of slot canyons in that area, we got to go back and, and do. Now, we should say, and this goes for any slot canyons, you know, especially in the southwest, but anywhere in the world, really have to check the weather forecast and be aware of impending rain and you know sometimes it's not in the forecast but these Mm -hmm. slot canyons can be dangerous they can be deadly yes if flash floods come through i think the thing that we have started to do now and i i would advise this for anyone is before you go in visit 
a ranger station or park visitor center, whatever it is they have close by. So Hanksville has a ranger station. And I would suggest going in there and saying, hey, we're going to go hike Little Wild Horse Canyon today. What do you think? And get their advice. You know, they have a lot more information. Um, And sometimes even we're going to talk about this in a minute, but sometimes these slots are flooded from a previous storm. So I would highly recommend that you look at the forecast and talk to a ranger. Right. And the ranger there at uh, Goblin Valley State Park, which is very, very close, mm-hmm. they, they would probably also know right. what the weather forecast is for that day. Mm-hmm. Next up on the list is Grand Staircase Escalani National Monument. And this um, area of land is managed by the BLM. It's a big area. It it's a big, big. wide, uh, spread out area. Mm-hmm. We've been in there several times. We've done, it seems like we've done a lot, but there's there's a lot left for us to do in Escalani, some of which uh, involves going down long, kind of rough roads. Right. But we'll talk about a couple of things that, that are, are pretty easy to access. First, first of all, one of the most popular hikes in the whole area is Lower Calf Creek Falls. Mm-hmm. And, and there, for good there, reason. <laughs> and there is an upper Calf Creek Falls, and, and those trails, you got to start each of those trails from a different place. So you if if you're going down Lower Calf Creek Falls, it doesn't like turn into Upper Calf Creek Falls. Right. They're two separate hikes. But Lower Calf Creek is about five and a half miles round trip. And at the end, you arrive at the lower section of Calf Creek Falls. It's about a 126-foot waterfall, and it's beautiful. And it it falls into this, um, I guess you'd call it sort of a small lake. And we were there in November, so it was a little bit chilly. But we've heard that in the summer, people are swimming in that lake and under the waterfall and kind of cooling off after the hike. You know, what's funny is that we've heard of, of Calf Creek Falls over and over and over again because people love it and they recommend it. We, we didn't want to go to it because of its popularity. Usually we don't like to go to the super popular places. But again, we were there in the off season and it was great. And there we hardly saw anybody. I mean, there were a handful of people. So it was definitely worth it. We should say that there is a BLM visitor center in the town of Escalani, mm-hmm. and it's it's a nice it's nice looks pretty new visitor center. Uh, folks in there can give you all the information you need about things to do. So that should really be a stop, your first stop, mm-hmm. if you're planning anything. That's right, and there are folks there from the National Forest Service too, because there are this land is also surrounded by national forest, and so. The cute little town of Escalani, where this visitor center is, that's where we usually stay. It's very tiny, but um, there are some good places to stay. And there is our favorite outdoor store slash restaurant. Right, right. <laughs> you could get uh, you get your outdoor supplies and a pizza. That's right. It's, and it's called Escalani Outfitters. And so that's they have great food. And you can get some hiking socks. And we've stayed at the Circle D Motel, which is great. We've stayed at uh, Escalani Cabins, mm-hmm. which is across the street from the visitor center. So um, great place to stay and definitely go in the visitor center uh, to get information. One of the things to do in the National Monument uh, – what we need to do more of is drive down that hole in the rock road. Mm-hmm. And it goes for a long way. I think it goes all the way to 
the border of Glen Canyon it does. National it Recreation actually, Area. Yeah, the last couple of miles are in Glen Canyon. It's uh, it's 62 miles. Now, it's a dirt road. We haven't gone all the way, but people say the last several miles are really rough, and you definitely need four-wheel drive. But the parts that we've been on haven't been bad at all. One of the things is there are a lot of great hikes that branch off from Hole in the Rock Road. One of our favorites is a slot canyon called Zebra Canyon. You park close to the road. It's a fairly flat hike to to begin with. There's really not a lot of elevation change Mm -mm. to that hike. Now, it's about a five-mile round trip. And so at the end of, what, maybe two and a half miles, you kind of get to a wash you have to be looking for it, but there's a series of slot canyons. Zebra Canyon is is off this wash, and mm-hmm. uh, you you kind of take a look at it and think, well, this this must not be it because I'm not sure I can fit through that <laughs> first section. <laughs> That's what I like about slot canyons. I have to I have to know the night before how much pizza to eat before I go into those things. But <laughs> I think you were afraid when you took your backpack off and started going sideways. You were afraid you were going to get stuck. When you have to take your belt off to get the extra <laughs> eighth of an inch clearance to get through, is it, you know that's a danger sign. But th- th- that particular slot canyon, it's narrow, but I think that very first section was the most narrow. So once we got in there, mm-hmm. we didn't have any more super tight squeezes? (laughs) No, it's definitely narrow and it's a short little slot canyon. The whole thing is maybe a quarter mile long, so it doesn't take very long to get to the end. But when you get, I don't know, maybe halfway, these um, stripes start appearing on the sandstone walls of the canyon and they look just like zebra stripes. And that's, that's how it got its name, Zebra Canyon. Yeah, we have a little video that we'll put a link to mm-hmm. um, filming you squeezing through this canyon. Was I swearing? You were. <laughs> I've, I've edited out some of it. Uh, I can't edit out all your swearing. But, uh, that would be impossible. Well, we'll put a link to that on our website. Yeah, we didn't realize when we went so when we were there, the canyon itself was completely dry. You know, we had no, there was no water to be seen. But we've read since then people's trip reports, and they said they have waded through waist deep water in there, which is kind of crazy to think about. I, yeah. I don't, I wouldn't do it. If, yeah, I don't, I don't wade through stagnant water <laughs> if, <laughs> <Ever>. <laughs> it's, if it's been sitting there for more than a couple days. <laughs> But there is also another slot canyon off that same road called Spooky that we did that on another trip. And that, again, that's another really narrow one. If you have claustrophobia at all, these probably are not for you. That is one where we turned around. I know. Because I kind of got into a squeeze and couldn't go forward, couldn't go backwards. And I thought, that's it. Yeah, it was pretty tight. Plus, there were, clouds were starting to appear above us, and we were freaked out about the possibility of a flash flood. And so, literally, I mean, there's no way to get out quickly of these places. So uh, we just decided we'd had enough of spooky. But, we got spooked. Uh, we, yeah. we got spooked and spooky. But again, so many things to do in Escalante. We've just barely scratched right. the surface on that. Now, if you go west of there, past Bryce, past Zion, kind of north of Zion, is another cool national monument that we didn't know about until mm-hmm. we had been in southern Utah four or five times, 
called Cedar Breaks National Monument. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes you'll see photos of Cedar Breaks and your first reaction is, oh, isn't Bryce Canyon beautiful with all the hoodoos? (laughs) And it's not (laughs) as big, but it looks very similar to Bryce Canyon. It does. In places. mm -hmm. One of the differences is from Bryce Canyon is, so it's a three-mile-long amphitheater, and it has all the same incredible spires that Bryce does and pinnacles and arches and hoodoos. But it's 2,000 feet below the canyon rim, and you cannot hike down there uh, like you can at Bryce. So so when you're there, you're up on the rim of the amphitheater looking down. There are no, there are hikes up there, but there are no hikes into the canyon. And it's at elevation. It's oh my like 10,000 feet at the yes. top. And one cool thing about Cedar Breaks National Monument is that because of that elevation, it has bristlecone pine trees. I know. I think we mentioned that in a previous episode about the parks that have bristlecone pine trees, which are the oldest trees on the planet. Right. So you have to watch the weather. Being at 10,000 feet, the visitor center and that that road is generally open from about may to october Mm because they can get a lot of snow up there Mm -hmm. uh so you know if you're if you're there and it's march and you think you're going to run up there to see cedar breaks it's probably not going to happen so be be aware of the road conditions right the park is closed in the winter as far as visitor center and and restrooms but and, and part of the road is closed but you can go and participate in some winter activities if you like so you can snowshoe in or cross country ski or even snowmobile into the park in the winter so that would be fun to do we've never done that before and if you're looking for a good hiking trail so what we did when we were there We did the Spectra Point and Ramparts Overlook Trails. It's two miles round trip, but we continued on to the Ramparts Overlook, which was another two miles in addition to that. And you're always along this entire trail. You're looking into this amphitheater. Mm -hmm. So you're getting different views of the amphitheater as as you're going down this trail. Mm -hmm. They have a campground there called Point Supreme has 25 campsites, and you can reserve those on recreation.gov. Some of them. You can reserve like 10 of them. Mm -hmm. And then I think they reserve the other 15 for walk-ins. So if you don't get one online, you can always take your chances of of getting a Mm walk-in. Yes, but Cedar Breaks is definitely worth a stop, especially if you're in the area of, of Zion and Bryce. We'd highly recommend a trip to Cedar Breaks. Is this our last one now? Buckskin Gulch. Last we save the <laughs> the best maybe for last. the maybe the best for last. I, I, at Buckskin Gulch is one of my favorite hikes ever. I know you've always loved that one, and we've been there like what three times now. So Buckskin Gulch is the longest slot canyon in the world. That's its claim to fame. And well, it's managed by the BLM. Mm-hmm. I guess that means it's all BLM land. Uh, it's part of the Perea Canyon. Uh, the Vermilion Cliff Wilderness Area mm-hmm. is right there. Mm-hmm. It's also, as you're going to to Buckskin Gulch, it's, it's right by the hike you take, uh, the trail that you take to the wave. Right, right. It's right over there, right on the Utah-Arizona border. Between Page, Arizona, and Kanab, mm-hmm. Utah. Right. So you could stay in either town and, and have fairly easy access to Buckskin Gulch. 
So what we do when we've been there is we park at the Wire Pass Trailhead Parking, and we go out into the Slot Canyon for, I don't know, maybe five miles or so, you know, see it's gorgeous, have some lunch, and then we turn around and we go back to our car. But what a lot of people do is they they want to see the whole Buckskin Gulch. So you can leave one car at the White House campground, drive your other car to the Wire Pass Trailhead, hike the entire thing, which is about a little over 20 miles to, you know, to where your car is at the White House and then drive back. So that's the way I, you know, that would take all day, obviously. That's the way people who want to see the whole or thing do it. multiple days. Or camp. Sure, yeah, people right. can camp, too. Um, so this particular hike, and the, well, the whole Buckskin Gulch, Backpacker Magazine named it the most dangerous hike in the U.S., and that is because if it rains and there's a flash flood, there is no way to get out. Right. There, there's a part of... There's a part of the Slot Canyon, which is the part that we always hike through, where there's there's nowhere for seven or eight miles that mm-hmm. you could get out. So if flash flood came through, it's going to get you. There's mm-hmm. no way to climb no. to elevation, get out of the way. So this in particular is an area that you have to know what the weather forecast is. Right. If you're in there and a flash flood comes through, you are out of luck. Yeah, and these flash floods aren't just a fluke. I mean, I read that they have about eight flash floods a year that run through Buckskin Gulch. And it's interesting because every time that happens, it completely changes the look of the canyon, right? Because new log jams will appear and and all of a sudden there'll be a chokestone where there wasn't one before and and huge boulders. So it every time those floods come through, it deposits things and, it, and it's a different canyon after that. And when you're in the canyon, you are reminded of these flash floods every now and then Mm -hmm. because you can look up and you can see a log that's maybe 20, 30, 40 feet high that's lodged between the two walls of the canyon. And and most of of the area in this particular slot canyon, the walls are 10, 15, 20 feet apart. Mm-hmm. So you'll see a log that's lodged up there. And the only way that that log could have gotten up there is part of a flash flood. Right, right. And I will say that this particular slot canyon does not have those narrow squeezes like we were just talking about for zebra and spooky. You don't have to go sideways and squeeze through any really tight spots. But <laughs> you might have to wade through stagnant pools. So it's funny because the first time we ever did it, it was bone dry as far as we went. Remember, there wasn't a drop of water in there. Right. No, no standing water of any kind. Uh-huh. But the second time. Oh, it, it, we ran into water right away. Right. And, and these, it, was, it was green. Yeah. These pools are are pretty putrid. Well, Is that a good yeah, word to describe kind of it? A lot of things living in there. Uh, yeah, slimy and stagnant and greenish. And yeah, it looks like there's a lot of stuff growing in there that you don't want to wade through. But a lot of people do it. A lot of people wade through them. Again, you can talk to, there's there's a couple of BLM visitor centers, one in the, the town of Kanab and then one off of the highway that's not far from the trailhead and they can give you a sense of maybe how much water is in the in the gulch. Yes. 
the, they can tell you before you take all the time to drive down this dirt road and hike into the gulch and before you invest the time and the energy, you should definitely check at the ranger station and they'll tell you if it's flooded or not because they know how many storms have come through. And it, they said it takes a long time to dry out, as you can imagine. The wet season for that part of the country is late July and then August and September. That's that's the monsoon season. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have asked us since we we say we've hiked it when there's absolutely no water. What what time of year it was? This isn't a guarantee, but it was early June. Mm-hmm. It was hot. It, w- it wasn't that hot in the canyon because it's you're, you're there's shade, but they must have had a dry winter and spring. And it was before the monsoon season. So that might be a better time, May, Mm June-ish, to to hit it uh, to avoid some of the water. Right. So as I said before, we've hiked about five miles of it maybe and and then turned around. And that seemed very manageable to us. But I was reading about if you continue further. And I just wanted to mention that this one blog post I read said that um, if you hike about seven and a half miles from the trailhead, you come to what they have named the cesspool. And I guess it's water that is pretty much always there. And hikers have had to wade through neck deep stagnant water Mm. for about 150 feet. So that is something to watch out for if you want to hike the whole thing. And the other one I wanted to mention is about 12 miles in, there is a big obstacle. It's a 15 to 18 foot drywall that you descend. Dry fall. Sorry, not drywall. So they dry... put up drywall along the canyon. <laughs> that would make it canyon. easier to it's descend. It's a little weird, but. It's a dry fall, and you descend it with the help of a rope, which I guess someone has affixed there. And there are some steps that are chipped into the rock. So it's just something to be aware of um, that you're going to come to that at some point if you want to do the whole thing. So two other things to mention. Mm-hmm. We always talk about parking at the Wire Pass Trailhead, and we hike then down this Wire Pass Wash. And you get to this slot canyon, which is beautiful, that's maybe a couple hundred yards long. And and a lot of times people think that's Buckskin Gulch, but that's just— That's Wire Pass. That's just Wire Pass, Mm -hmm. and it's beautiful. But that just leads you to Buckskin. The other thing is as you're driving— south on House Rock Valley Road. There is a turnoff to the Buckskin Gulch Trailhead. Mm-hmm. We don't take that one because, and you can, you, you can park there and go right into Buckskin Gulch. That first few miles isn't really as interesting right. as the area that you you go to when you do wire pass and, and then go into Buckskin Gulch. So just a note. You can do it either way. It's, it's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. The other thing is what we get this question, like, why do we like slot canyons? Mm-hmm. And when you're in those canyons, because they're so narrow, even on a sunny day, the light doesn't get directly to the bottom. And when you're taking photos, the light is bouncing off of these the sides of the rocks, and the colors are incredible. It's a lot like what we described when we went through the Narrows in Zion Canyon when mm-hmm. we hiked that. And, and so the, the photograph opportunities are just incredible. And, of course, just even if you're not taking photographs, just the, the visual of going through these canyons is spectacular. 
Oh, my gosh. It's beautiful. Yeah, that's one thing after we've said all this, we didn't say how how incredibly spectacular this canyon is. But it's it's gorgeous. And again, it's just mile after mile. We're not talking about a quarter mile zebra canyon. We're talking about every time you round a corner, this new vista is in front of you, this beautiful slot. Another thing, too, I wanted to mention you purchase a um, sort of a parking pass at Wire Pass Trailhead. You need to bring $6 with you. Um, you purchase that and put it on your car window. But other than that, you do not need a permit to hike Buckskin. Um, if you're going to camp, there are very specific sites where you can camp, and you do need to set that up ahead of time. You need a permit for that. You have to put the $6 in an envelope and stick it in the slot. So mm-hmm. we, we've been there many times where <laughs> – all I've had is a 20 on me and, you know, so that's fine. It's a voluntary donation to the BLM. But uh, if, if you if you want to pay it, uh, and this is another tip as we're driving through all of these parks, we always have a wad of ones with us because mm-hmm. you never know what you're going to run into a, a, a small parking fee and you want to be able to pay pay it. So Right. So on all of these, we did not mention specifically directions and hours and all kinds of things like that because it's all so easily accessible on the internet and we just don't have time to go into all those kinds of details. So um, you can Google any of these places that we talked about and get more information. And things change. Uh, Right. Mm -hmm. Change, uh, you know, road might be washed out and so a Mm -hmm. direction we give you today might not be right three years from now. So... Um, anyway, the, the, online these days, you can get all that information. Right. So again, we hope that as you're exploring the mighty five national parks, that you'll keep some of these other national monuments and other parks and public lands in mind to explore because there is just, there's a wealth of places in Utah. Did you want to mention our PDF? Yeah, we, we did a little write-up, uh, gosh, maybe a couple years ago. Anyway, mm-hmm. we called it the 20 Amazing uh, places to visit uh, when you're in southern Utah that are outside the five national parks. And uh, it, it gives a little bit more detail about where it is. And uh, that PDF, will put a link to it on our website. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a nice little reference tool. And there's a little map on it that shows where all these places are. So right, uh, right. We'll, we'll, we'll make that resource available also. That's right. To all of you who are wondering if you can see the Mighty Five in Utah in one week, the answer to that is you probably can, but why would you? I think Utah needs many, many, many trips to fully see all these amazing places. Yeah, I agree. You know what it's time for? It's time for the warm up. <laughs> no, mailbag. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Mailbag. What do you think we've been doing all these hours? <laughs> recording recording the podcast, and now it's time for the mailbag? Yes. Yes, it's time for the mailbag. Your favorite part of the mm-hmm. show. It is. It is my favorite. So today's question that I chose comes from Nancy in Fort Collins, Colorado, and she wrote in and she wants to know how we met. How we met. We should record these separately without <laughs> listening to each other. And then they just have the producer like put them back to back and see how close they match. That's right. See if we tell the same story because we have completely different 
uh, remembrances. Well, I don't think you remember. No, you don't remember. <laughs> you don't remember us meeting. Well, that's the problem. Several times. <laughs> Why don't you tell it, Matt? Well, we were both at the University of Kansas back in the early 80s, and it was in August. So back then, the University of Kansas would have students come a week early to do administrative stuff like sign up for classes and buy books and all stuff that would take about 37 minutes, (laughs) but you would have to come a week early. And so that spare time. Uh, during that week. It was actually called Country Club Week, Mm -hmm. and you got to know your fellow students. Right. It basically was one big party. It was one big party, and Mm -hmm. it also happened to be your 20th birthday. Right. And we met the old-fashioned way in a bar. (laughs) That's correct. This particular day, it's your birthday, you were there with a girlfriend, and I was with a, a guy friend of mine, and we happened to be the only four people in this little bar that was close to campus, and you were with your girlfriend celebrating your birthday. Mm-hmm. And we talked and had a lovely conversation. <laughs> you were very friendly to me. I thought that was great. <laughs> thought it went very well until the next night I ran into you at another party. And you had no recollection of me. Well, in my defense, it was a long night. We went to a lot of bars, a lot of parties, and and I met a lot of people. Not that you this didn't. Was last stand- night, or this was the, <laughs> the night of your your twentieth birthday. On my twentieth birthday. I see. Mm. And then, so that was. I, I felt okay. That I, I get it. You you wouldn't remember me. So we had a lot of nice long conversation. However, the third night, <laughs> I I see you at another bar. And said, hello, Karen. And you were a little concerned because you didn't know who I was or why I knew your name. So I, <laughs> I thought that was really great that no. after two nights of meeting you, the third night, you had no recollection of me. <laughs> so I have a rule. I only beg three times. But and... it, it only took three times. Well, good, because that was the <laughs> limit. I remember that third night I was walking to the restroom in the bar and I passed by you. You were talking to some other girls, and you looked at me, and you said, hello, Karen. And oh, yeah, I- I'm not just waiting around. I mean, <laughs> got to keep the pipeline going. <laughs> you snooze, you're, you you're lose. You're on your third chance. So. And I just remember when you looked at me and said, hi, Karen, I thought, wow, who is that cute boy who knows my name? And it stuck from that night. Uh, from the third night, Glad. that was it. That was it. <laughs> and you asked for my phone number because back then, of course, that's what you had to do, right? We just had the old-fashioned phones in our apartments. No one the had a cell phone. Phones. And uh, you asked for my phone number. You waited a week to call me. I think that was like a punishment. <laughs> it, no, I was just <laughs> – it's just I, it took me a while to. It took me three nights to find your phone number. Oh, I'm that's sure. what I do. Like I'm sure wait. that's true. And then almost just a little bit more than two years after that, we were married. Right, we were engaged a year later. Right, and married a year after that. So it was, you know, once you know, you know, and when you when you meet the right person, I think. Uh, I think it all becomes clear. Yeah. So that was like what about seventy two years ago? I think. <laughs> and look at us now. And now it's we're like... the recording podcast. It's all gone very well. <laughs> Happily ever after. 
If you have a question for us, you can send us an email to mattandkarensmith at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Go to facebook.com slash dearbobandess, or you can find us on Instagram at mattandkarensmith. We'll review all the questions that come in, and we'll be answering some of them in our mailbag segment on future episodes. To see pictures of the 10 places we talked about today, go to www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com and click on the title for episode 11. There you'll find the show notes for this episode and links to other information. Thank you, thank you to all of you who've already given us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We are at 277. Wow, I I didn't know that. (laughs) Yes. That's great. I know, it's really great. But we'd love to get to 300. So if you haven't left us a review yet, we sure would appreciate it if you did. Um, Now, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, even if you listened to this episode on Google, Spotify, or another podcast app. The books that this podcast is based on are available on Amazon.com. Just search for Dear Bob and Sue. And you can also find more information about us by heading over to www.dearbobandsue.com. Our show is produced by the amazing team at Puddle Creative in Portland, Oregon, who has to make us sound good every other week. Our artwork is by the designers at Expert Subjects, and our theme music is by Will West. Maybe next time we go to Buckskin Gulch, we'll make it to the cesspool. Well, we might make it there. But I think that's about as far as I'm going. You're not waiting through? No, you can't. You can can report back to me how it was. I'll go first. (laughs) 